Hello and welcome to another episode of MTG Rants. Unlike normally, this is Ross talking to you and driving the show because Tannen was very busy this week with some flesh and blood stuff. So I'm going to be joined by a very special guest today, and that is Level 3 Judge Elliot Raff. How are you doing, Elliot? Doing well, Ross. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for being here. Uh, Elliot currently resides in the handsomest city in the United States, that is Roanoke, Virginia. It's true, it's true. Somehow y'all suckered me into being here. <laughs> it, it could be all the bar trivia and lawn games, but it's unclear. No, it's pretty much just the bar trivia. <laughs> okay, okay. Well, th- those aren't going away, so you should be here for a while. Uh, before we get into it, I would like to thank our, our first sponsor, and this is our newest sponsor, Mox Roasters. If you're a big coffee drinker, this is a, a you know, artisan coffee company for, uh, run entirely by magic players they got a bunch of great stuff encourage you to check them out and use the code mtg rants that's in all caps to get 10 percent off of your order so elliot i'm a, i i know you're somewhat familiar with the podcast so you know that we tend to start by bullshitting about non-magic things yeah, yeah, and Ross, I'm not going to lie, I got a bone to pick with you this week. So. I, I figured you might after yeah, um, the events of last night. So for, for those of you who do not know, Elliot is originally from the Boston area and uh, is a, a Boston sports fan through and through. So if you're paying attention to the NBA playoffs and you saw the result of the Celtics game last night, we're recording this on a, on a Thursday afternoon, uh, so this Wednesday game, uh, it, it looked like it was going pretty well. We were up, you know, 10 to 15 or you know, in that range throughout most of the, the second half. And I, I decided to run my mouth to Corey about how my predictions for most of these series in the second round were looking good. You know, all my teams were going to take leads. And I, I thought the Celtics were going to take this one, especially with no Middleton playing for Milwaukee. And then... Um, then the last eight minutes happened. Well, Ross, if you recall, I literally looked over to you as soon as you said that the Celtics were looking good, and I said, you know better than that. Why would you say something like that, Ross? And so, sure enough, you know, the Celtics <laughs> forgot how to play basketball in the last five minutes of the game, <laughs> and now we're down 3-2. Yeah, it was not a, not a good end of the game. You know, I... I, I, I refrain from saying something like, oh, they're definitely going to win. That's usually where I draw the line. You know, what I said was factual, but yeah, it did not, um, it was not a good omen. Yeah, yeah. Ross, I, I think uh, you should know a lot about saying factual statements that might not turn out to be good. Just <laughs> Especially when it comes to Boston sports. You know, I, I think we're both old enough to remember the, the pre-2004 era of Boston sports. Thing, things kind of changed. After that series with the Red Sox and Yankees, before then, you know, it didn't matter what sport. Every Boston fan was just terrified, you know, really before 2001, New England and the Patriots had never won anything. Uh, you know, the Bruins, I don't think had won since like the 70s. So it was a, it was a rough era in the 80s and 90s as a Boston sports fan. And then everything turned around in the 2000s. But we both remember that that pre-04 era. Oh, yeah. No, I literally have to explain to people now that I'm living outside of the Boston area, when they find out that I'm a Patriots fan, uh, they kind of give me a look, you know, because the Patriots are still pretty hated for all the winning we did. 
It's like, I'm not a bandwagoner. I saw Drew Bledsoe get hurt and out of that game, and, you know, I still remember it, so don't loop me in with, with, the, yeah, yeah. with the bandwagoner fans. Did, did you watch the 97 Super Bowl? I did watch the 97 okay. Super Bowl. I mean, I was, I was pretty young, but, you know, I still yeah. remember it. I, I do remember a lot of bandwagoners after they started winning, you know, uh, being from Connecticut, where uh, and Central Connecticut, where we're kind of evenly split between Boston and New York in terms of sports fandom, uh, a lot of the people who were on the fence, you know, would just sort of jump between them. And when New England started winning, you started seeing a lot more, you know, New England jerseys and jackets around, and uh, you know, people cheering for that side. So I've always had a uh, distaste for the Patriots because of that, because I witnessed the bandwagon forming. Uh, um, fair and. and uh, but you know, uh, that's neither here nor there, but yeah, I mean, I've been getting more and more into basketball since I've been here in Roanoke, you know, hanging out with, with you and some of the other folks that are, that are big into basketball. So I've been getting really into the Celtics, uh, which has been great because my Red Sox have been terrible. Uh, T- Tannen will, will know this. They, uh, Tannen's Braves knocked us off in the ninth inning last night. Uh, Oof. Yeah, we just, just can't win a game. Like, I'm glad oh, I'm not recording with him then. It's bad. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm I'm a little happy Tannen's not here to you know rub that one in my face. But yeah, apparently I haven't been following that much. I usually don't start following baseball until after basketball's done. But are the, my understanding is that they just can't score. Yeah, yeah, it's pretty bad. Uh, I'm pretty sure the Red Sox right now. I want to say are 11 and 20. Uh, which is good for last place in the American League East. Yeah, and when you're behind the the Orioles. Orioles, And that's when you know that it's bad. Yeah, that's when you know that it's putrid. Like, being being fourth would be bad. Being behind the Orioles is unconscionable. Yeah, like, being fourth, it's like, all right, there's there's four good teams. It's like, no, no, there's there's three good teams, and and we're not one of them. (laughs) Well, I mean, after what happened last year with the Braves... It's hard to give up hope too early. That is uh, fair. Yeah. So we'll, we'll hold out some hope, but yeah, this team does not uh, not look nearly as good as they did on paper in March. Yeah, I was on uh, on the record, I think, in the preseason, saying that Rafi Devers, uh, who's a fantastic third baseman for the Red Sox, is going to you know go on a tear and win the MVP this year. And uh, yeah, he's not doing bad, but. <laughs> it's, uh, it's not going to happen if we're, you know, bottom of the barrel. I mean, you know, Mike Trout's one MVP is on some shitty fucking Los Angeles Angels teams, so you never know. That's true. I'm glad to see the Angels are finally doing well. That's yeah. uh, that's a a big boon for baseball if uh, if Mike Trout and Shohei Otani are are out there running the show. Yeah, I mean, it's been too long. Like Mike Trout should have been in the playoffs by now. It's a crime that he hasn't been. And at least now that they don't have that albatross of a Pujols contract weighing them down, they might be able to put a good team around him, and it appears they have. Yeah, they've got a lot of good young talent. Like, both teams in Los Angeles are doing well. Both teams in New York are doing well. If I'm Major League Baseball, I'm doing a big, fat, happy dance right now. They just had a rookie throw a no-no, right? Oh, yeah, yeah, like two nights ago. That's that's pretty good if if you're into that sort of thing. But I, I, I get the same feeling that uh, about Mike Trout making the playoffs like I did uh, when Roy Halladay first made it, 
where you're just like really excited to see what he's going to do after 10 years of languishing on bad teams and he delivered so oh, absolutely yeah <laughs> I, I you know there are some folks where it's like even if they're playing against your team constantly you're so happy to see them finally get a ring and roy halliday was definitely up there for me oh yeah for sure yeah. i was a big holiday fan he was on my fantasy team for years my team was called what's up doc <laughs> great name yeah i thought you'd like that one but it's it's okay it's okay though elliot you're only you're only down three two you just need to win a game on the road hopefully you'll have the the robert williams back because they got eviscerated on the boards didn't they i thought that was one big problem the the last two games have been atrocious like the the last uh play of the game to go ahead for the uh, yeah portis getting the offensive rebound on the the Giannis missed free throw. free throw. Yeah, it's, that's the kind of thing that just can't happen. You can't do that in the playoffs and expect to win games. But, yeah. you know, we, we'll see if Robert Williams can come back. That'd be great. I mean, they've shown they can win without him. But, I mean, it, I, I just don't know. I, they've, they've certainly got the talent to make it, but the Bucks are certainly playing out of their minds right now. Yeah, the Bucks have that. They have that confidence of a team that got over the hump last year, that defending champion. And Giannis, the, the one thing everybody says about him, and it's very true, is that he just has he doesn't know how to not play 100% all the time. So yeah. having him as the linchpin of a team is a good, you know, good way to ensure that people aren't going to slack off at all. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I think during the couple of years where they were dominant in the regular season and didn't figure it out in the playoffs – that kind of stuff can, you know, sometimes really, you know, doom the mindset of a team. I think that's one of the things that that uh, has happened to the Jazz. Um, but you know, for them, it really hardened them and made them better. And now they've got, you know, that confidence that they know that they can put runs together and, uh, you know, win ugly games and do those things that you know separate championship teams from non-championship teams. That sounds really yeah. generic sports talky. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, more specifically, I think what needs to happen. Uh, so Jason Tatum's ended up having some fine games the last couple of games. I think he's been over 30 both times, but he's gotten off to really slow starts and gotten stronger as the game goes on. And I think uh, I'd really like to see him come out, you know, guns a blazing. Uh, I think the game's tomorrow night. And and really just try to get get it back to Boston. Uh, I think it, if he can set the tone early, then the Celtics will be good. But. Yeah, this series deserves a game seven. I would I would uh, like to oh, see absolutely. it. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, it's been the best series I think of the four, and they've been pretty good. I thought they were actually going to be uh, kind of lopsided, but that was the one one place I was wrong. Every series has been good. I couldn't fucking believe the beatdown that Memphis put on Golden State late last night. That was ridiculous. I, I was scrolling Twitter and saw something like, you know, 103 to 58 or something, and I'm just like, what in the world happened? <laughs> I, I think the I think the largest lead was like 52 or 53 at one point, and it, it was ridiculous. I've never seen that Golden State team play so sloppy. They were just making such lazy passes all over the court. They couldn't get a good shot to save their lives. I, I, it was, it, it was mind-boggling. Yeah, especially the Grizzlies doing that without Jaw Morant. Yeah, they are definitely way better defensively without Jaw, uh, and I think that has showed. But 
you know, Golden State couldn't even really stop them either. They were getting whatever they wanted. They should, they, you know, they they had a, a good shooting game, but not an absurd one. That now that now that's interesting because you it feels like you, you know, if Golden State doesn't win Game Six, now they've got that you know three one lead meme <laughs> coming for them again. <laughs> and you know who yeah, who knows? I, maybe. I don't know if they'd live that down. They. Early on in the series, and even in the previous series, they were looking like the Golden State of old. And I suppose they didn't want to go all the way back to the 3-1 blown lead Golden State. But, uh, <laughs> yeah. But, yeah, we, we, we might see that. And, and honestly, like, I'm kind of here for that. I think that would be fun. But I'm not a big fan of any of the remaining teams in the West, so I don't really care who wins. So I'm kind of rooting for the memes. Oh yeah, root for the memes, root for the the good games, you know. Yeah. It's just what you want every time. It's just some entertaining basketball. Well, fingers crossed. Okay, uh, we are going to segue here into the main part of this episode, which is going to be talking a lot about judging in Magic. Uh, as I mentioned in the, in the intro, Elliot is a level three judge, which is the highest level in the program uh, now. Um, and definitely has been around for many years. I don't know exactly how long you've been judging. What is it, like 10, 15 years, something like that? Uh, coming up on my 10-year anniversary. 10? Yeah. yeah. Um, so this is you know an aspect of Magic that I think a lot of players are somewhat ignorant of, uh, including myself, and one that is definitely very important. So uh, we're just going to be you know breaking it down and picking Elliot's brain for a little while here. Uh, before we get into that, though, I would like to thank our other sponsor. This is our original, our OG sponsor. That's Barrister and Man, Man with two N's. Uh, great company out of upstate New York selling uh, high-quality grooming and shaving products. I know, Elliot, I, I hooked you up with a little, uh, little bit of the aftershave balm when you had to shave your beard for, uh, for a roll earlier and you were a big fan. Oh, absolutely. I've been using it ever since, and it's night and day difference highly recommended yeah uh be sure to use the code mtgrants2022 to get 15 percent off of your order at checkout there so uh you you're coming up on your on your 10-year uh anniversary of judging so you started in 2012 yeah yeah that sounds about right yeah Uh, that's actually the year i started playing on the scg tour so a little bit of of synergy there really started grinding it. i think i played my first open in like 2009 or 10 or something like that but um so i guess first and obvious opening question is is what made you take the leap into judging because i I assume you've been playing for some time before that yeah yeah i started playing uh magic you know, more seriously going to the LGS, things like that. I believe uh, Ravnica City of Guilds was the most recent set. That would be 05. So yeah, I was in middle school at the time. Uh, and, you know, I'd run events uh, not as a judge before, you know, just whatever needed doing, needed helping out with. Um, but my best friend at the time uh, was the local judge in Boston. Uh, his name's Casey Brefka, uh, former level three judge since retired. Uh, and he kind of got me into actually getting around and taking the test. Uh, I'd been grinding competitively for a while and was interested to see what judging was like. And, you know, ran a few FNM, started working a few local 1Ks and the like, and just really fell in love with it and pretty much been going straight ever since. 
Yeah. And, and what about it really attracted you to judging made you want to keep doing it and, and rise up the ranks? Well, uh, so that's a big question as far as rising up the ranks and everything goes. But, uh, it, you know, I, I really like helping people. I think that's at the core of, of everything and making sure that things are done correctly, uh, that people are on an even playing field, that everyone is you know, receiving good rulings, knows how things are supposed to work. Uh, Magic's a really complicated game. You know, part of it's certainly the brain teasery aspect of it, uh, wanting to know certain interactions, and so you can apply that to other interactions and answer questions. But uh, really the reason that anyone judges and continues to judge uh, for a long time is people. Uh, It's... You know, it might be the players at your local game store, but it might be the fellow judges that you work with. Uh, I've been doing this for 10 years and have made friends that I'm going to have for life uh, as a result of working these events. And that's why you continue to show up and and do it. Yeah, much like playing, it's the gathering and, and, you know, all that keeping you. So we see some some nice parallels there. as an as an anecdote from my side, you know, I remember the the first big event I played was regionals in two thousand three, uh, and I was playing blue green madness, and in like round three or four, I don't even remember what the interaction was, but like something happened, and I didn't understand the interaction that was going on, and my opponent called a judge, and, and you know the judge sides with him, and. Uh, uh, you know, I think he goes on to win the match. Probably not, you know, directly due to that. But I just remember, for me, it was such a bad feeling to like be at this tournament and not know how the rules worked, <laughs> and like get get got on something like that. And so I resolved to just you know, always be on top of the rules. And uh, I, you know, I've spent a lot of years you know, talking with judges off to the side and making sure that I was on top of things. Uh, not only on you know how you know, different interactions worked, which I think is important, but also how the, you know, penalty procedures go and how judges, you know, go about uh, making those decisions. So I, I would sort of learn how to communicate effectively, effectively with the with different judges uh, and know the, the kinds of things that they were looking for uh, just to make sure that, you know, I generally, you know, never lost any sort of uh, equity in a game from from not knowing that side of things. So, um, you know, what's I th- what I think is relevant for from the player side is learning that. So, can you provide some insight into how you know uh, an average judge call might go that um, you know is more of a of a judgment call from your side as opposed to a straightforward like how do these cards interact kind of call. Uh, yeah, sure. Uh, so we're getting a little bit uh, into the policy side of things. Uh, so there, there are two main um, main areas when it comes to judge calls, and they'll generally either fall under rules or policy. Uh, policy being the documentation that we use uh, as guidelines to make rulings, uh, issue penalties if appropriate, that kind of thing. Uh, so at competitive rules enforcement level, which I assume most of the listeners are interested in, uh, we have a policy or a document called the infraction procedure guide. Uh, and this is something that, you know, you'll have 
heard referenced, you might have heard, you know, uh, the term game rule violation or hidden card error before. Uh, those are straight out of the, the IPG, uh, or Infraction Procedure Guide. That's just probably how I'm going to be referring to it. Uh, as far as judgment calls go, uh, really, when, when any judge takes a call at the table, we want to get as much information as possible about what went on. Uh, generally speaking, you know, everyone's going to have their own interpretation of what happened. Uh, hopefully, players agree and makes it a little easier on us, but we know that's not always the case. Uh, and so we'll, we'll basically ask questions. We'll ask players to state what happened as, as accurately as they can. If we have follow-up questions, then we'll ask. Um, I think one of the, one of the uh, most common kind of decision point uh, or judgment calls that we make um, is actually communication-based, uh, based on players actually wanting to clearly uh, communicate what's happening in a match. Uh, specifically, we'll get a lot of questions over the word okay. Yep. Uh, and if and if the word okay uh, has any particular rules meaning when it comes to passing priority. And the actual answer to that, for those of you at home, is it depends. <laughs> I, I knew <laughs> I that's what you were going to say. Yeah, yeah, it's not what you want to hear, but that, that actually is true. Um, because we're going to basically ask if there's been a shortcut established by how you've been communicating so far. Uh, you know, that's the kind of questions that we might ask. A lot of the times, uh, stuff tends to be pretty cut and dry. Rulings tend to be pretty cut and dry uh, once you've got adequate information. So providing judges with the most information possible that they need to make their ruling is the best thing that you can do as a player. Because if you leave something out, then that might veer the judge's ruling in a way that might not be what it should be. Uh, it might not work out the best for you. But the more information that we have to go off of, the more informed we are. And the more informed we are, the more accurate ruling we can make. Yeah. So, you know, it, it goes to show that we're always harping on communicating effectively with your opponent. But it is also very important to communicate openly and effectively with the judge's uh, and that just makes things go, you know, very smoothly. So that's, you know, if that's not something that you at home have thought about at all and you're playing high-level tournaments, you know, uh, I'm not saying you got to spend, you know, weeks, you know, thinking about this, but, you know, give it a little bit of thought and, and you know, maybe th think about times when you, you weren't as clear as you could have been with a judge and maybe it, you know, came to your out to your detriment. Yeah, for sure. I mean, uh, so I, I like to play competitive magic as well. Uh, and played a couple of weeks ago at the team open in uh, the team sealed open in Pittsburgh, um, and had to call a judge a couple different times. You know, team sealed events being a little more judge call heavy than normal, just because there are more people watching the match. Um, but for limited, it was just uh, a call where I had connived uh, off of I forget the card's name, the one drop that just has three mana that's connives. Sure. Yeah, whatever. That's that's what the card does. Uh, and resolved it and had discarded it in a non-land and forgot to put a counter on my creature. Um, because I was just using it for the draw and I didn't really think about that all that heavily. Uh, and I caught it during the next turn, right? Uh, so I call a judge, comes over, and I knew it was going to be important to explain you know, what the error was and what had happened since. 
Um, you know, obviously me, level three judge, being familiar with the IPG knows what information the judge needs. But it was basically just like if you were to look at a Magic Online game log, like that's what I recounted to the judge. You know, yeah. everything from the, the point of the error forward. So because that's all information that the judge needs. Now, apropos of nothing, my understanding is that the way connive is worded, the counter and the and the loot are all part of one ability. So if you went to resolve part of it, you have to resolve all of it. Yeah, yeah, that's so absolutely right. So you're so you're going to get the counter. Well, it, so in that particular scenario, it depends. Um, so. In, in the IPG terms, in the infraction procedure guide, this is a game rule violation, right? This yeah. is something something has gone wrong, um, and a game rule of some variety has been violated and doesn't fall into any of the other categories that could get into that, but there's really no point. Um, so basically, a uh, game rule violation, there's a, a set of things uh, that says, we don't need to consider anything else that's happened. You can just go ahead and do this. Uh, so an example of that would be if you miss drawing your card for the turn, right? Uh, it, it doesn't matter how long it's been. Uh, if we determine that you've missed a card draw, we're just going to tell you to go ahead and draw a card. For anything that doesn't fall under one of those sets of things, uh, the judge has to consider a backup, right? If they uh, consider uh, has enough happened to the point where we can accurately reconstruct this game state and it wouldn't be to the detriment of someone too much right uh so in this case it was pretty easy you know we were able to back up the game state there had been like a card draw and an and a combat and that was it uh but there are always mitigating factors that might make a judge consider or, or rather leave the game state as it is rather than back it back it up uh, can you can you one, list some of those factors? Sure. Uh, so a big one, especially in older formats, uh, is say there's been a turn pass and been a card draw, and there's a fetch land on the table, right? So for instance, uh, part of that backup would be returning a card at random from the player's hand who had drawn the card back on top of the library. Now, if there's a fetch land in play, that vastly changes the information that the player has available to them. Right, we might be getting rid of a card that they wanted, or we might be putting a card back on top that they don't want, and now they're able to shuffle that card away and draw a new. So, for instance, if there's a fetch land in play and a card's been drawn, almost never, you'll, you'll almost never back that up. Uh, so that's that's an example of a scenario where the game state would be it, it would be more harmful to back up uh, than to not back up. Is there a, uh, a particular reason why the IPG doesn't just allow you, you know, say in the, in the instance of, of your story, to just put the counter on and without backing up and just continue forward from that point? So, basically, if my opponent had made decisions based on that counter not being there, that's what we need to consider. Yeah. And, and I've seen instances where the players will tell the judge that, you know, neither of us is going to change our decisions based on this. We can just put the counter and move forward. Yeah, and that's actually exactly what yeah. happened. And the judge will go, um, will go along with that. Yeah, like the judge, uh, in this scenario, the judge that took the call did a great job of explaining a potential backup before it happened, uh, which is 
an aspect of communication from a judge side that we always want to do regarding backups because say one player didn't like what was going to happen, they have the right to appeal that decision to a head judge um, before actually moving game pieces around and then it becomes too late to do anything. Yeah. Uh, but we disagreed. Like, you know, the judge went through it and was like, that sounds good. Are you okay if we just shortcut all of this and I'm just going to put the counter on my thing? And, and we were fine with that. Um, but the reason being is because there's a very specific set of, of, uh, of things that can happen. Like I was saying before with say drawing a card, um, that we can fix without it, without basically the opponent making any kind of decision. Uh, that's, that's generally the impetus for the, the partial fixes, what we are allowed to just come over and say, yes, that's thing can happen. It's, it's about reaching as organic a game state as possible without adversely affecting it too much in the case of that. So that's the overarching philosophy, you know, behind the how the IPG is crafted. Yeah, exactly. And for those who actually would want to read the infraction procedure guide, you can. It's a publicly available document uh, where it lists out pretty much everything that guides competitive rulings. Yeah, it's and long. Part of... It is it is long, but part of the uh, part of the document is an overall philosophy section, and then there's actually philosophy sections for each infraction. Uh, oh, that's cool. Yeah, I always it, love it to get very... the thought process behind what, what's going on, as opposed to just the rote. You know, this is what's going on. It's sort of like commenting your code. Yeah, exactly. And and the reason that we do that is because uh, the the IPG is a fantastic document. You know, years and years of work have gone into it, revising it, making it what it is. Uh, but the thing is that policy is designed to cover, you know, 95% of scenarios. There's always going to be that 5% that doesn't necessarily fit one bucket perfectly. And in that scenario, it can really help to look at philosophy for a given infraction and, you know, devise a fix based on what you want to do in that scenario. Cool. Um, let's let's actually get into you know more about the IPG and, and how you know the the judge program I guess is crafted because that, that's an area that I don't know very much about but I know that there's a lot of work you know that goes on behind the scenes outside of tournaments between judges in, in different regions and other localities to you know one like build up the judge community and, and create those networks but also to you know build everyone's skills and you know give people the opportunity to advance through the program as you have and many others have so um i, I don't know exactly where to start specifically but let uh i guess let's say um I, I know you went to a conference in dc last weekend right is that you know is that part of a, a larger system of sort of judge meetings or is that basically w what it is? You know, people hold conferences in different places and you're free to attend them. And so what, what goes on, you know, at those judge conferences and how are those organized? So uh, that, that's a great question. It, it's a little column A, a little column B. Uh, so for those unfamiliar, uh, a few years ago, uh, or sorry, prior to a few years ago, rather, uh, the Judge Program was a volunteer organization that was functionally sponsored by Wizards of the Coast. Please don't parse my language too closely when it comes to that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but uh, Wizards provide its own amount of support and networking, and uh, certain roles in the Judge Program were actually contracted employees of Wizards. 
and at the end of 2019, beginning of 2020, uh, there was a organization called Judge Academy that was formed uh, as a worldwide judge certification program, and that's uh, who the judge programs run through today, at least from a certification and education standpoint. You said at the end of 2019 into 2020 is when that was formed? Yeah. Interesting yeah. timing. Go on. Yeah, it sure was. <laughs> uh, I, I believe it was known about from that summer forward, but that's when the actual changeover happened. Uh, sure. Summer 2019 forward. Um, so Judge Academy uh, organizes, organizes and sponsors these conferences worldwide. Uh, and these conferences can be anything from, uh, they, they are digital as well. We move to digital conferences, uh, you know, over the course of the pandemic, as, as we had to, um, to in-person ones like one that I attended in the D.C. area last weekend. And what it is, is there are folks who just decide that they want to run a conference. Uh, so this conference might be focused on any number of areas, right? There might be a conference, for instance, entirely about policy. Uh, and you'd go over the IBG and the judging at regular document and various folks would have presentations covering various areas and get together in a room and discuss things and learn more, you know, because there are always folks looking to come up. Uh, there might be ones focused more on softer skills, like communicating with players or how to make your local events uh, more inclusive. You know, there's a million different aspects to judging. And I think that's a large part of the reason why folks get so uh, so engrossed in it is because there is so much to learn. Yeah, it's just like with magic. You, you, can, you can interact with judging, you know, as you can with playing in a myriad of different ways. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That's a great way of looking at it. You know, uh, uh, the vast majority of judges that you see are never going to work any event outside of their local game store. And that's great. You know, we still need folks who are committed to fostering local environments. And just because, you know, you're not uh, working the next pro tour or whatever, it doesn't mean that, you know, you still have enormous value. I'd like to think that everyone who signs up to become a judge, you know, wants to better their community in some way, whatever they decide their community might be. But you can interact with it by being the judge that knows all the rules. You can interact with it by, you know, being the judge that runs drafts at FNM. You can be a traveling judge that goes around to GPs and SCG tours and, you know, interacts with the player base that way. Or you could be a judge that's extremely online, like myself. <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know, it's it, it really is just one more aspect of magic that folks can just choose to choose to enter in as they see fit. Um, but getting back to the conferences aspect, uh, conferences are a great tool because they allow us to share our knowledge and experience in ways outside of events. Uh, events are great but also events are work and we want to make sure folks are compensated for their time and not every tournament organizer can afford to hire you know three four ten judges to work an event and that's that's a good thing right but uh that that community aspect of judging is is monumentally important uh, for instance uh, i gave a talk at this judge conference about mentorship in the time of covid because mentorship used to take place almost entirely at events. 
And with those going away, you know, it requires a little extra effort and uh, some some adjustment for sure. Yeah, a rethinking of how that would work. Yeah. So, uh, are there are there other uh, you know tools that judges use to stay connected outside of events? You know, I'm sure there are some online spaces where y'all can talk about things. Um, are, are there higher level conferences? Are they all sort of the same same thing? Is there a structure to those systems? Uh, so I can't necessarily speak to the exact structure of the different types of conferences. I know that, uh, well, I'll back up a bit. As far as online spaces where we interact, there's quite a few. Um, most regions, uh, say like the USA East or you know Japan or what have you, have uh, discords or Slack or whatever method that they use to communicate Facebook groups and the like. Uh, there's the Judge Academy forums, uh, sort of online where we discuss various topics. So, you know, if someone needs help or anything like that, uh, it's a great place for discussion as well. Uh, as far as, you know, higher level communications, uh, I know that there are definitely uh, subsets of folks that have their own private spaces. Uh, for instance, you know, there uh, was a North American L3 Judge Slack that, uh, you know, died off a little bit, <laughs> but certainly existed. Uh, and the same goes for conferences. Uh, I know that, uh, for instance, the type of conference that we used to hold were leadership conferences for a region where we'd get you know, judges perceived to be doing a lot in their community, whether or not they were officially titled uh, with prior roles in, and we'd all gather for a weekend and just discuss plans for the region going forward. Uh, I know in Europe, they tend to hold L2, con L2 plus conferences, I believe once or twice a year. Uh, so conferences are really just a great tool for whatever audience you decide to hold them for. And Judge Academy uh, rewards folks for engaging in the community and thanks them. And that's generally where the vast majority of, say, judge foils are handed out as well. Cool. Um, so we we mentioned, uh, you know, obliquely uh, COVID, you know, being a, a thing that started coming through right after Judge Academy was formed. Uh, and, you know, y'all having a conference or your presentation being about mentorship, you know, changing or the, and the changing role and, and details of it due to COVID. I'm sure, you know, the pandemic has had a huge impact on the judge community um, the same way it has on, on the rest of the magic community. But is there anything that you can think of or speak to that is somewhat unique to the judge community and how the pandemic impacted y'all? It's a great question. Um I think there's really two main things. Uh, one was kind of during the pandemic and one as we're starting to, to re-enter uh, the space of, of events. Uh, one is just, I'm always struck by the Magic Judges commu uh, community's ability to kind of band together and to, to get through challenges uh, because you know, just like other folks that play Magic and travel around or testing teams or what have you, it's very self-directed. Uh, it's it's a exercise where you, you can go as far as you want and get help to do just about anything. 
But even in a space where there were no events to be working, uh, there were conferences every weekend on everything from diversity and inclusion to keeping communities together during COVID to, you know, keeping your skills sharp. And it, it's really just a, it, it was just incredible to see. So, so y'all really took the time to, to make use of the fact that you, you didn't have events going on every weekend to say like, you know, we can use this time still for skill building within our own judge community. Yeah, absolutely. I did not realize y'all were so active. Honestly, there were a lot of folks that were more active than I was. I'll certainly say that. Sure. But, uh, but some of the work that was done to kind of hold things together uh, was truly incredible. And I don't think that gets talked about enough. No, that that's awesome. And I'm sure that was incredibly important work when, you know, events started coming back. Because if, you know, the judge program had been in a sort of lapse during that time, you would have had a lot of, you know, you know rusty and inexperienced judges uh, in those tournaments. And that could have, you know, had a major negative impact on the integrity of the tournament and player experience. Yeah, absolutely. And that kind of segues perfectly into the second half that I was talking about now that uh, events are starting to return. Um Obviously, it's been a couple of years uh, since events returned. We had a major changeover in the way that the judge program was even structured as a whole. And there were a lot of folks that either haven't come back yet due to whatever reason that, you know, is theirs, whether it be life or being uncomfortable still going to large gatherings during COVID. And that's all perfectly fine. Uh, but there were just as many folks and a lot of experience that chose not to judge anymore. Uh you know, I've been doing this for, for 10 years, and my first event back was the SCG Con in Roanoke last October, the one with the Invitational. Uh, and I was double-checking myself, I think, on every ruling for the first two dates. You know, it's it, not to say that double-checking yourself is a bad thing. I still do it all the time, as well you should. <laughs> but it, it just speaks to the fact that everyone was rusty. Yeah. And everyone is continuing to be rusty. And it's it's still so heartening to me uh, to go to these events and see faces that I don't know. And I honestly didn't think that that was going to to happen a whole lot when, when we started first coming back. I didn't think there were going to be new judges that were going to come out to their first SCG Con or NRG event and, and just be ready to go. But it happened. Yeah. And that, you know, y'all's work during that downtime definitely played a major role in that. I'm sure. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think the last thing I wanted to talk about, uh, was how a big event, you know, say like a, an SCG open or an NRG, uh, you know, formerly grand prix and things like that, you know, one, I, I kind of want to break that break that down. So we'll start with, you know, how are those events staffed? You know, what is the system in place for y'all to get assigned to those events? So uh, judging is, is independent contracting. Right? Yeah. At its heart, that's what it is. So uh, in the in the old, uh, but before Judge Academy, we had a website called Judge Apps uh, that was independently run and maintained uh, where tournament organizers would come and post events and 
basically you would apply. And and that's carried over to Judge Academy as well. Yeah, they just integrated that functionality into Judge Academy. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So so basically, you know, say it's Star City Games, they post up, hey, we have this event on this date, and here's what we're paying, and feel free to apply. Um, the application process, uh, at least for the larger events, tends to be fairly competitive. Um, just so you, because so you tend, they tend to get more applications than they need by quite yeah. a margin. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and, and the reason being is because, obviously, there's a certain level of prestige uh, to, to trying to work a larger event. Uh, and the tournament organizer is looking for a certain amount of experience, or if you don't necessarily have the experience and they want to know, for example, who your mentor is, um, and you know someone who's able to vouch for you if they don't know who you are already. Um, once all that's done and the staff gets made, uh, the head judges of the events or sides leads or other folks in leadership positions will sit down and basically determine the schedule. Uh, they'll assign folks to teams, uh, give them events for the course of their shift. Uh, and this is all based on either uh, the head judges or leads personal philosophy when it comes to staffing and basically saying, okay, who of these folks can we lean on that we don't have to worry about? Who of these folks are looking for more experience? Can we help them out by, you know, maybe getting them their uh, one of uh, a team lead opportunity and then making sure that they've got a strong team behind them so that, you know, even if things don't go well, the tournament's not going to suffer as a result. Uh, there, there's a lot that goes into that kind of thing. So, so how many total judges are usually hired for a weekend like this? Uh, so it would depend on the size of the events. Um, I uh, think let's say a thousand for, people. Yeah, right, that's so probably a little high. Let's say five, like 700 people. Sure. So 700 folks, let's say that's, uh, generally speaking, you want to have around one judge for every 40 to 45 players. That's ideal. Um, and, and that's for so every event. So not just the main event, but all event. the sides. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so a, a lot of the time, the, the main event staff somewhat differently than side events, but that's not really, <laughs> not really here nor there. Um, so ideally, most... Uh, say like Grand Prix Magic size, sorry Magic Fest size level events will have a staff of around seventy to hundred judges. Um, so if that gives you an yeah. idea. And and you talked about you know team leads and different teams. How many how many teams are those seventy to hundred judges divided into? Uh, so on if it's a main event for say a grand prix uh those are divided into shifts as well because those days can be significantly longer uh, than we'd like <laughs> yeah so say uh a, a typical judge shift being about 10 or 11 hours so there'd be say uh probably about seven or eight different teams on the main event and then an additional probably three to five teams on side events as well are those main event teams, they get sort of divided among the different tables? So, like, you know, one team has tables one through, you know, whatever and so on? Uh, no, actually. So they're divided up into tasks, not tables. Ah. Um, so there's a, there's a lot of lo background logistics that comes with judging large events and even small events. But, <laughs> but we're talking about the larger ones. Yeah. So, for instance, uh, it might just be one team's assignment to be 
the paper and floor team. And what that would mean is if, uh, you know, we were at an event in the before times before MTG Melee and such uh, with paper pairings and match slips, that it would be their responsibility to get that paper from the stage, cut up the match slips, distribute them, and then they would be the primary team that stayed on the floor taking judge calls. Um, if you've been deck checked at an event, uh, deck checks is I, its I own team. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. De- deck checks is its own team. So uh, the lead of that team is concerned with, say, it might be checking X number of decks. It might be, say, it's a two-day event, checking as much of the top tables as possible so that their counterpart for tomorrow uh, has as easy a job as possible. Uh, it you know, it could be any number of things with that. Uh, there's the end of round team, for instance. So we all, I'm sure we've all been at events where uh, events run significantly over time in the round. I have. Um, yeah. So the, the end of round teams is job is to kind of mitigate that as much as possible. So that would mean knowing which tables have lengthy time extensions, making sure that the ones with a, with a, Longer time extensions have more experienced judges sitting on them earlier so they can maintain pace of play and things like that. Uh, there, Yeah, there's a lot of, of background logistics that goes into to judging. Yeah, a lot more than just, you know, you know, looking at raised hands and answering rules questions. Yeah, for sure. You know, um, so uh, are the, you know, the there's three levels for judging. Your, your L3, which is the highest... I imagine that you know most L1s are are the you know team members, and then our, our team leads mostly like L2s, and then L3s above that doing more high level stuff. Uh, so it would depend on the events, but again, let's assume we're talking about a Grand Prix level event. Uh, so the majority of judges that you find on a Grand Prix level event will be L2s. Uh, L2s are generally uh, the floor judges on events such as that, and L3s would be team leads and head judges. Uh, L1s, generally, you might find a couple of them on the main event, but by and large, they'd be working side events at regular rules enforcement level. Uh, The level system in judging is primarily used to delineate uh, a floor of of your knowledge, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, As in, you know, a typical L2 judge will be capable of uh, you know, running a store-level competitive event on their own, and they'd generally be accepted to work the main event of, say, Grand Prix. Um, whereas L3s would be entrusted with, you know, more logistical work at Grand Prix, those team leads, leadership positions. Uh, most times, if, say, uh, hopping back a bit to the backup discussions, uh, most of the time... Uh, those kinds of calls go through an L3 judge before they're actually implemented on the floor of Grand Prix events. Uh, because we want to make sure that the policy experts are are able to, you know, weigh in and make sure that we're not about to horrifically mess up a game. Sure. And, and that even goes for L3 checking in with other L3s as well. So I presume uh, in your time as a judge, you've held just about every role there is at a given event. Or at least a uh, large a, number of them. Yeah, definitely just about. Uh, I've, I'm uh, certainly what you describe as an events judge. Um, you know, we th- there are different types of judges, as I alluded to earlier. You know, there are folks that are more focused on the community. Uh, there are folks that are more focused on conferences or education. And I got my 
my bones and my expertise uh, through work, working events. Uh, I I also had what you'd call somewhat unfortunate timing <laughs> with relating to Judge Academy because I was actually promoted uh, to level three in February of 2020. <laughs> so I haven't necessarily gotten to do everything that I'd like to yet. Yeah. But uh, but I I'm I would venture to say that I'm certainly one of the the more experienced event judges out there. Yeah. So uh, so we'll. Let's go through the, some of the different roles, and if you could, you just w- walk me through a, an average day, let's say for just an L1 working side events. Sure. Uh, so, as I described uh, in the main event as well, there are different teams on side events. So, for example, uh, you might be on the scheduled events team. You know, say you sign up for the 4 p.m. modern or what have you. There's a judge running that. Uh, you... Any judge at the beginning of the day is going to check in with their team lead. Uh, for sides, it's generally a more experienced L2 or L3 that's coordinating all the logistics of sides. Uh, by the way, sides lead is the most difficult job on any event floor. You might think it is on the main event. It is not. It is 100% the sides lead because you have to juggle uh, a million different judges trying to do a million different things and have to get them all their lunch breaks and everything. It's just a lot of logistics work. Makes sense. Uh, And so uh, they'll get their assignment for the day. Uh, They might be assigned to cover one event and just run it start to finish. Uh, They might be on the on-demand events team. So that would be like your drafts, your commander pods. Your in-person fill and fires. Yeah, exactly. Although we don't like to use the word fire anymore (laughs) for for, for, uh, fairly obvious reasons. I don't know why it took us so long to stop using that one. Yeah, uh, I I was at the SEG Invitational with the fire drill. Oh, yeah, I I was a head judge that day. That was fun. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Yeah, uh, but so you might be uh, launching eight-person events. So in that case, your day is going to be familiarizing yourself with your area, knowing where the product is, knowing what you have to give to each player, say for a commander pod, you know, what prize tickets you're dropping on the table. And then your day is going to be a lot of hustle. It's going to be a lot of back and forth, uh, making sure that everyone knows how to draft, making sure that folks know where to go to get their prizes, that kind of thing. Uh, Sides is a lot of customer interaction. You're not going to necessarily flex your your rules or policy knowledge on side events but you are going to talk to more players over the course of the day than anyone working on them in and you're working you said a a 10 11 hour shift with a presumably a lunch break in there yeah a lunch break and then generally an additional 30 minute break as well okay and does the average l1 work like all, all you know all three days they'll work 30 33 hours on the weekend uh, it depends on the staffing needs of the event. I would say probably most L1s will work two days. Um, but it, generally speaking, most folks that you see at the larger events will be working two days with the occasional folks running three just because there are fewer people in the hall on Friday generally. So now now let's talk about maybe somebody in a team lead position as an L2. Uh, you know, you, you could sort of pick one. I, I guess... Um, um, let's uh, let's let's do the deck checks one. Let's talk about that. What what sure. is that person? Uh, so, pretty much any team lead. Uh, what's essential is preparing ahead of the event. Um, that's not necessarily something that a lot of folks will know, but it really is the difference between your day going smoothly and 
and uh, and not in a lot of cases. So for the deck checks team, uh, and really for any team, you'd want to know who's on your event, uh, or sorry, who's on your team, rather. If you know them personally, great. If you don't know uh, them, then you might have to do a bit of research, uh, say, via their Judge Academy profile, find out uh, you know what kind of level of experience they have. Deck checks teams uh, are unique in that you're generally assigned to work with a buddy uh, because uh, it's a pretty bad thing, say, if you're out collecting for a deck check and then a judge call happens nearby and you don't want to look like a jerk by being unable to answer it because you have to collect decks. But you also don't want to let the players know that you have to collect these decks <laughs> because, you know, part of it is that they don't know that it's coming, right? Yeah. Uh, so... So generally speaking, your buddy will go out there with you uh, and field any calls that might happen in that area while you're while you're collecting. Uh, as far as the leads go, so you want to assign those buddies. You want to pair up generally more experienced folks with less experienced folks, so that they can, so that one might be able to teach each, each other something. Does this assignment happen well beforehand, or does that happen morning of each day? Uh, it honestly depends on the leads' preference. Um, I, I like to do it beforehand so that folks can talk ahead of time if they want to. But generally speaking, you'll have half an hour or so at the beginning of the day uh, just to get to know your team anyway. There are team lead meetings at the beginning of the day. We generally show up before the players um, to, to get all these logistics and things sorted out. Yeah, and to keep the players so, out of the hall because they always show up too early. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Uh, as far as... Um, other duties that a team lead might have, really your job is kind of to serve the head judges, right? So if I have a vision of how deck checks are supposed to run, say my head judge wants me to check X number of decks on the day, uh, that's entirely their prerogative, and I'm going to go with what they want. Uh, other other um, head judges might just care more that players see checks being done rather than the actual number of Right, so say we're experiencing uh, a larger event than we had anticipated and we're short-staffed. Part of deck checks, honestly, is just kind of security theater. We just want players to know that they're being done rather than actually thinking that they might get checked at some point. Uh, although, you know, cards on the table, if you're doing well in an event, there's a greater chance that you'll be checked at some point. Uh, yeah. So so we might want to say, hey, let's only do one check this round as opposed to a beginning and a mid and then get on the floor because we've got a bunch of judges running around and we've got too many calls for the amount of people that we have. Uh, it's, it's kind of like a chain, honestly. Your floor judges are communicating to your team lead and your team lead is communicating to the head judge in whatever position that you have. Cool. And uh, and last, like you know, the the highest level people, the head judges, of the event. What is it, what is their day like? So their day is generally interacting with stage staff as much as possible uh, in scorekeeping. Uh, their their job is to keep the train on the tracks, as it were. Uh, so that might mean that they need to know about lengthy investigations. Uh, or sorry, lengthy time extensions, rather. They might need to take appeals. Uh, appeals are a natural part of events. You know, if a player doesn't 
agree with a floor judge's ruling or just wants to hear it from a different source, they've got the right to appeal to a head judge, and only the head judge can take this. Um, there, so that's uh, oftentimes you'll see head judges either being at the stage so that they're most accessible, or else being on the floor talking to other team leads and kind of figure out how the day is going and how they can best you know shape the course of the event. Uh, so. Uh, obviously, appeals are a big part of that. Uh, they're also the only people on the floor who are in who are uh, entitled to disqualify players. So, if someone comes across a sketchy situation, you want to get the head judge involved as soon as possible so that they can investigate and get them a body bag. <laughs> well, hopefully, they weren't cheating, but uh, but you know, certainly it happens. So, uh, does the does the head judge, because they are sort of the person that, you know, high-level things get funneled to, do they work longer shifts? Yeah, yeah. The head judge will generally be there the entire day. Yeah. I I guess for, you know, the main event of these big events, that, that that's only a two-day event, so the head judge for that event doesn't is probably not going to be there on Friday. Yeah, it depends. Uh, there are certainly some some judges that show up and work a Friday shift and then all, all Saturday and Sunday as well. Um, but it, it's really just however they negotiated the sure. judge for that particular event, yeah. Okay. Uh, last question I have is, um, you know, what are the some of the big, you know, I, I guess roadblocks is how I'm going to put it, um, you know, that come up, you know, issues that arise pretty commonly during tournaments that, judge staff has to deal with that maybe the player base isn't aware of? Hmm. That's, a, that's a good question. And what, what are the fires that you find yourself needing to put out? I would say generally uh, it's mainly or sorry hmm, I'm trying to put this in context because uh, a, a lot of the times uh, I, I'm in either a team lead or head judge position so I think Mainly any fires that come up are either with particularly problematic players that we want to kind of contain as much as possible or an isolated incident has happened and someone needs to take some time off the floor. Uh, really, it's kind of just our job to keep the train on the tracks and kind of keep everything moving. So it's, it's not that there are common scenarios that that get hidden from the players necessarily because oftentimes, especially at these higher level events, the things that tend to be fires are things that aren't, or, uh, are things that aren't anticipated, right? Uh, they're, they're what we call in the IPG a significant and exceptional circumstance. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so really a, a lot of the time our job is to just, keep players from noticing that there are fires. It's it's not necessarily that the fires are going to be the same every time, but you just want to keep players playing magic. You just want to waft the possible. smoke in the other direction. Yeah, exactly. Cool. Um, so uh, I think that is going to wrap up the, you know, magic part of the segment and uh, or of the, of the cast. And since you're familiar with how we do things here, I'm sure you know that we're going to finish up with a little overrated, underrated. Um, oh, absolutely. Yeah. So I'm just going to run through some. Uh, we've got a large backlog of them. So, 
and uh, yeah, just you know, let, let me know how you feel. We're gonna start sure. with one from Cathal, uh, and that is goulash. God, I I'm not sure I know exactly what that is. Goulash is a traditional Hungarian dish. Um, sort of a stew heavily flavored with paprika because in Hungary they use paprika on everything. Well, that sounds delicious, so I'll say underrated. Yeah. I didn't know what it was. I generally think Eastern European food is underrated, uh, especially uh, in that region around Hungary where they use a ton of paprika because Hungarian paprika in particular is very good. So underrated with goulash. Also a very versatile dish. Like There are traditional vegetables you can use, but you can really throw in whatever whatever you want. Um, next we've got from Matt3024, Midweek Magic on Arena. I'm not entirely sure what this is. So Midweek Magic is basically, they just throw up kind of like a novelty event. I think it's like Tuesday and Wednesday just to get people playing. Uh, I'll go with underrated. They're, they're generally pretty, pretty fun and they're good ways to just like knock out quests if you're into that i personally haven't touched arena in a long time but same <laughs> but but i i do enjoy the wacky format so i'll go underrated i also enjoy wacky formats but i don't enjoy things that are just obvious schemes to get people to use your program every single day yeah that's fair so it kind of balances out to properly rated that's where i'll i'll land next giant food challenges and where you have to eat some huge thing and then it's free uh, having done exactly one of these, I will say overrated. <laughs> yeah, I'm also going to say overrated. Encouraging gluttony and waste. Not great. Now we've got from Flakel, Nickelback. You know, this might be the most controversial thing I say all podcast. Uh, underrated. I, I agree with you. I, I haven't looked into it, but I've read that the reason that they started getting so hated is just from some like radio show that started doing it as a joke and then it spread and became a sort of meme. Like, they've got some legitimately great songs. Yeah. And yes, they've got some memes, but there are way worse bands out there. Definitely. Uh, next, Joe at Mr. English 22, quarterbacks. Quarterbacks are perpetually underrated. Yeah, it's just the most important position, I, I think, in all of sports. Yeah, it, it's the single most important position. Yeah, in any I'm team in sport, sport, like, yeah. the most impactful. They touch the ball on every offensive possession. Like, it's ridiculous. Um, so, yeah, you just need a good quarterback to win. And, like, the rare exceptions are when the team has had just a you know, all-time defense. Yeah, I mean, there, there have been times in the past, like, I'm thinking, like, 70s, 80s, where you could win just based off of your defense, but that's just not the NFL anymore. Yeah. You can't win without a good quarterback. Yeah, and I, and I, and I can think it, I think it's happened three times in the last 25 years, and it was the, the Ravens with Trent Dilfer, the Bucks with Brad Johnson, and the Broncos with the corpse of Peyton Manning. Yeah, you could maybe throw in the Ravens with Joe Flacco in there, too. Well, Joe Flacco, much like Eli Manning, just like had small stretches in the playoffs where he played very well. He just played above his level. So for the, for that you know series of games, they were just very good quarterbacks. They just weren't in general. This is where where I would be. Uh, next up, we've got KFET again with cornerbacks. I see we've got a back theme going on. <laughs> uh, I'll go overrated on cornerbacks. Um, yeah, I'm inclined to say overrated as well. 
Um, I think far and away the most important, you know, defensive positions are pass rushers in the modern NFL and, and defensive line in general. And it, it it's a pretty steep drop off from there. Yeah, the the thing is like the elite cornerbacks are obviously very, very good at what they do, but they even elite cornerbacks uh, don't alter a game plan all that much if the skill positions are there. Like I'm I'm thinking like sh- true shutdown corners still get thrown at regularly because it's just so easy to disguise offenses now. Yeah. Next, catatonic walrus with betting on elections. Uh, betting? Yeah. Ah, jeez. Uh, I'll go with overrated. And so, in terms of being able to make money, it probably I would probably say underrated. I think it's probably an easy system to game, but like the fact that we allow this to happen is just ridiculous. Like, yeah. no no real functioning society would allow this to happen. This is like the fall of Rome-level uh, decadence. Yeah, except it happens all the time. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's yeah. constantly now. Uh, KFET again with Kevin James as Sean Payton. Kevin James as Sean Payton? Yeah, this is a thing. I, I don't even... I don't even want to see that. <laughs> <laughs> so so vastly overrated, I guess. Yeah, there there are, uh it's being it's a Netflix movie and it's I think it's just called is it just called Peyton? No, it's called Home Team. I you know, I I don't mind Kevin James and I actively like Sean Peyton and I still don't want to see that. Yeah, I actively don't like Kevin James, so I'm going to say overrated just based on that. Fair. Uh, next up, a variance twenty-eight with Gary Payton. Uh, Gary Payton's underrated. I think he's overrated, actually. Really? Yeah, I think defensively he's a little overrated. He had a uh, the guard next to him. I can't remember his name. Was also really, really good, and they had good defenses around him. Um, uh, I think you know he generated a ton of steals, which you know in the nineties people thought you know assumed meant you were you were great defensively. He was great. I actually think he's underrated offensively, but overrated defensively, so maybe that just balances out to properly rated. Yeah, I mean, actually, mine was was basically that I thought he was underrated yeah. offensively. Like, defensively, everyone kind of knows how good he was, but yeah. I, I suppose it's quite possible that he was overrated defensively. He was de- He's definitely underrated offensively. I'll, I'll agree with you there. Uh, continuing with the Gary theme, we have Gary of Asphodel from KFAT. Oh, God. Well... Sorry, uh, overrated. Yeah. Very, very overrated. Pretty obviously overrated there. We saw what it did when it was reprinted. Like, the, the, the strength of that mono black deck was in the quality of its removal relative to the rest of the format, the power of underworld connections, um, and, you know, had a lot less to do with the creatures. I think the creatures were the most overrated part of that deck, but it's what everybody focused on because that's what you literally lost to. So, like, when you just lost a pack rat or Desecration Demon or Grey Merchant, like, that's what, where everybody looked to. But it was really just, you know, it was Thoughtseize, good removal, and Mutavault. Well, I will say, uh, as someone who didn't play a lot during that standard format, I very much enjoyed playing Grey Merchant in the old Pauper Mono Black Control decks. And, and I'm sure those are still around to some degree, but, uh, but even then, there's just so much better things to be doing in Pauper now that... Gary's time has passed by. Yep. 
Uh, next up, we have Joe at Mr. English 22 with Gary Busey. Gary Busey's underrated. Yeah. Have you seen the, yeah. the Buddy Holly story? I haven't. That movie is great. All right. Yeah. Gary Busey's just like, people tend to dismiss kind of, I don't know what's the word for it, kind of like different looking actors thinking that they just get by off of the fact that they look different from from cookie cutter actors. But no, they're, they're legitimately very talented. Yeah. But the Buddy Holly story is really good. Um, next, we have Flakel with Mariah Carey. Okay, so I think Mariah Carey in general is properly rated. I think people generally know how great she is. I think that All I Want for Christmas is You is slightly overrated at this point. I agree completely. I mean, Mariah Carey is a, you know, not, not, she has like a multi generational voice. Oh, yeah. Like the range that she has, it's absurd. Just, I, absurd um next up we have curry we've gone from gary to carry to curry <laughs> i like it i like the, the little chain we got going on curry is very underrated yeah i mean indian food is my favorite food so I'm, i tend to be more of of indian favoring indian curry though i do like uh thai curry as well i'm not a huge fan of japanese curry i don't know how you feel about the different curries well i i'll be completely honest i used to be like a pretty picky eater, so I'm still experimenting with different curries. But once I started eating curry, I'm just like, I've lost so much of my life not doing this. Yeah. <laughs> I would. Have, so have you had different Thai curries, like just like red, green, yellow? I have had different Thai curries. Okay. I don't think I've had Japanese curry. Okay. But I've had a lot of Indian and Thai. Uh, yeah, underrated. Even though even though everyone loves it, it's still underrated. Uh Gil is next up with Steph Curry. You know, I never quite know how to answer this. Because watching Steph Curry play, he is obviously a generational talent. But on the other hand, everyone now knows that he's a generational talent. And he is getting on in his years a bit here. So I think right now I will say overrated. Yeah, I would agree in terms of his on-court production, he's had a down year, so he's probably slightly overrated. Um, if I think of, you know, big picture, I'm going properly or slightly underrated. To me, to me, I, I think the the big question for current players is where you would have Steph relative to Kevin Durant. Some people have Durant ahead of Steph all time. Some have Curry ahead. I'm a Curry ahead of Durant guy. I would also put Curry ahead. Okay. Uh, next up, we've got Fuzzy Dan with Tim Curry. Oh, Tim Curry is underrated. Yeah, everyone loves Tim Curry. Oh, He's great. I, I, I will fight people about Tim Curry. Do, do you know the internet meme of, like, you can tell a lot about a person based on what movie they associate first with Tim Curry? Oh, yeah. What, well, yeah, what's yours? Mine, mine is Home Alone 2. Okay, all right. Mine is Clue. Mm, I've seen Clue. I was actually disappointed by Clue. It was not as good as I hoped it would be. All right. How do you feel about the Rocky Horror Picture Show? I've never seen the Rocky Horror Picture Show. Well, we have an agenda for the week. <laughs> we'll get right on that. Uh, but yeah, definitely underrated. Tim Curry is fantastic. Uh, next up, Imre Hill 327 with Mossaman Curry. This is another Thai curry. I don't think I've had that one. This one is delicious and very underrated. One of my absolute favorites. I, th- I think I would have green, number one, and Mossaman, number two. 
Um, it is awesome. All uh, right, Mossam and Curry and the Rocky Horror Picture Show. We got ourselves <laughs> a weekend. Okay. Um, I'm, we're going to do two more because I like these two. We got uh, DLC being the age 33. <laughs> well, uh, I am just shy of 30 myself. So, so I cannot say for sure, but Sick I will brag. say that my, my friends who are around that age seem to be doing great. So I'll say probably underrated. Yeah, I am exactly 33, so I can say with confidence, underrated. The, you, you know, the, the internet memes are all about how your body starts breaking down in your 30s, which is true. Uh, and that kind of sucks, but it's more than balanced out. By the fact that you're so much more, or at least in my experience, just much more self-assured as a person and have an understanding of who you are and what you want out of life and and relationships and everything else. Uh, and that just makes everything much smoother. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Uh, and then the last one, Joe at Mr. English with being the age 32. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh... I believe I just answered this question. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, obviously underrated for all the same reasons, but I liked that that back to back. So that is going to wrap it for us today, Elliot. Thank you for being here. I th- uh, I hope that was an enlightening conversation for our viewers. It certainly was for me. Well, yeah. Thanks so much for having me. Uh, you know, if you ever want to know anything about judging, you can uh, feel free to. Hit me up. I'm on Twitter at uh, Raf underscore Sputin. Um, Good Twitter handle, by the way. Yeah, I, I gotta throw that to uh, to my old roommate Dave, uh, who is among the funniest people that you will ever meet in your life. Just called me that one day, and I'm just like, well, that's my handle everywhere now. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, shout out to uh, to Mr. Scopec, uh, Dave Mart on TCG Player if you need cards. <laughs> nice. Uh, and uh, as always, you can find me at, at Ross Hunnids um, uh, on Twitter, and that's the best place to keep up with uh, everything that I am doing. Um, so, yeah, that is going to do it all for the cast this week. Tannen is going to be back next week, I'm sure, uh, and we'll talk about his adventures commentating Flesh and Blood as well as catch back up with what is going on with competitive magic now that uh, Streets of New Capenna has been out for a couple weeks, uh, and we're going to be leading up into the Pro Tour next weekend that is standard and historic. So going to be a lot to talk about next week, but that's going to be all for us now, and we will see you then. Bye. <laughs>